like to begin with this quote from the Dhammapada. The mind is difficult to control. Swiftly and lightly it moves and lands wherever it pleases. It is good to train the mind. It is good to train the mind for a well-trained mind brings happiness. And then, not a mother nor a father nor any other relative can do more for the well-being of one than a well-trained mind can. I think we all can relate to this, how it's very hard to train the mind. We, uh, we really see it, go here and there, wherever it, please, it pleases. And that's why we do these practices. We're not here just to sit in calm and let the mind go willy-nilly where it goes. You know, we do the practices of metta and equanimity, for example, to train the mind to go towards something wholesome. We do the practice of mindfulness to steady the mind, to be able to reflect what's happening moment to moment, and to remember to bring that kind of um, mind the mind of mindfulness, to the moment's experience. It doesn't do that with great power, with great continuity. So we have to train it so. We have to do this over and over to remember to be mindful over and over again. I began a series of talks about the living embodiment of the four sterling qualities of a beautiful human being. And I'd like to continue in that series today. I talked about virtue, living in harmony, sila. I also talked about faith, or sada, the ability to really have trust in the path of opening and have trust in our ability to be free from suffering. And tonight I'd like to begin the talks about wisdom. This is the one of the four of the beautiful qualities of a human being, beautiful human being. So each of us are aspiring in our own ways. And sometimes we feel stronger in one area than we do in another area. And I hope that we feel those strengths rather than just kind of focusing on the places where we feel weak. But I'm trying to bring out these beautiful qualities so that we can really take note of them. We can really put light on them. We're cultivating these qualities. Every time we practice mindfulness, it's said that because mindfulness is one of the beautiful qualities, one of the 25 or 26 beautiful qualities of the mind, like attracts like, so it brings forth the other qualities nearby. The Buddha called such a person who has these qualities, Sapurisa. This is a person with a beautiful heart, a beautiful mind, a superior person, he would say. And I would say that each one of you, in your own way, all of us here, have these qualities. 
we are beautiful people, really. I mean, we don't go about putting halos over our heads. I hope not too much, but we have to, we usually do the opposite. You know, we're usually not thinking we're as, uh, we're thinking we're inadequate. We're not thinking we're good enough, usually. So I wanted to point these qualities out more so we could ponder on them, so we could really bring light to them. And as I said before, this is a beauty that doesn't depend on outer conditions. As we get older, we see those qualities more beautifully developed within us because we're, we are intentionally developing those qualities, like we do in our metta practice, in our equanimity practice. With intention, we incline the mind there. It may be, you know, boring and monotonous and but we do that to make that pathway really clear so that when we're in situations where it could use equanimity or metta, it can go there easily. And we develop these qualities also because they enable us to see life more clearly. A person with a beautiful heart of generosity, of sila, morality, a person with uh, those kind of qualities, a lot of faith in one's heart, that person can open to the truth of life. Sometimes it's painful to see how things really are in life, but that kind of person can open to life more easily. So I'd like to speak about wisdom. The higher part of wisdom, according to the Buddha, is that which is called the wisdom of insight. Seeing things as they really are. Seeing the Dhamma. When we talk about the Dhamma, the Dhamma is the truth, the truth of how things are. The Buddha says, This is seeing into the arising and passing away of phenomena, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. It's this faculty that eventually ripens the fruits of a stream-enterer, of a person who first experiences um, Nibbana, or the first entry into enlightenment. It leads one even beyond that to the higher levels of enlightenment and to the final goal of that completely unconditioned peace of an arahant. In the service of wisdom is the immeasurable quality of equanimity. So um, more specifically, in terms of wisdom, I'd like to speak about equanimity tonight because this is what we're going to be practicing for the next few days. This equanimity is called the doorway to peace. So I'd like to speak about equanimity on a couple of levels. The first level is the everyday level that we're developing, the level of being non-reactive to what's going on outside in our uh, environment, with our family, our friends, the conditions, and uh, a level of equanimity or balance with regard to our inner world. It's such an important uh, 
quality to really understand why we do this. It's not just to make our lives in the world more easeful, which is a great thing in itself, but it has a quality which enables our minds to go deep, to penetrate the layers of delusion, to be able to open to uh, understandings that may be quite uncomfortable to open to, but because of equanimity, the mind is able to open to, to it. The Buddha said that for one who develops a deep abiding equanimity, it is the natural law to know and to see things as they really are. It is the natural law to know the Dhamma. This is a quote from the Buddha. Wisdom bears the fruit of liberation, and equanimity is the doorway to that liberation. So the two levels I'd like to speak about are protection from the eight worldly winds of change. And we've been talking about this for the last few days. Um, I've been mentioning the eight vicissitudes of life, joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. These are the categories that the opposites of opposites that the Buddha put this in. And every single um, experience in our life can probably be categorized, uh, put into one of these categories. These external winds are the triggers for inner reactivity. That's why I try to do the practice in a way where you're you're looking at what's happening in the outer conditions of your life, but you're also making it a point to really connect with what's going on, with how that trigger outwardly activates something inwardly, and to pay close attention to both because otherwise we just get either overwhelmed by our own inner reactivity or we get overwhelmed by the outer condition of the world. So that's the first level. And the second level is more subtle. It's when equanimity is strongly developed by the continuity of mindfulness and wise attention. Um, With that continuity of mindfulness and wise attention, equanimity is automatically brought forth. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, also one of the four Brahma-viharas, these divine abodes. It's also uh, developed because the, um, the five powers of the mind are in balance, and this kind of balance is equanimity. And Generally, just in brief, it happens because there's no reactivity at a very deep level. And what I mean by a very deep level is it's not about the reactivity to outer triggers of the world. It's about reactivity when there is a pleasant feeling in our own minds. There's no reactivity to that the pleasant feeling in our own minds can uh, be the cause and condition for attachment to arise. Attachment is a reactivity to pleasant feeling. 
if the unpleasant feeling, if an unpleasant feeling arises, the reactivity to that is hatred or aversion. So when there is no reactivity, greed and hatred do not arise in the mind. When there is just the ability to notice pleasant and unpleasant for what it is, greed and hatred do not come up. And of course, non-delusion is already there because the mind is seeing very clearly. So just in a nutshell, just to begin with, to realize that when greed, hatred, and delusion are absent, the mind is very powerful. It's very clear. It experiences a moment of, um, Upandita calls it, mini-enlightenment. You know, just a moment of that can feel so powerful. And it gives you an idea of the possibility of what we can do on this path, which is why we started to talk about pleasant and unpleasant in the instructions the other day. So when this happens over and over and over again, when there is an absence of greed, an absence of hatred, or any form of those, an absence of delusion, and because one moment of equanimity brings forth another moment of equanimity, the mind stream becomes purer and purer and purer. And this is what uh, creates the doorway to peace, this kind of purity. The Buddha described this quality as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, of course, without attachment, without ill will. A sense of great spaciousness and bigness and that just allowing for whatever to come up because there's this great power to see it clearly without holding on if it's pleasant without pushing away if it's unpleasant. It's big enough to include everything, this kind of spaciousness, because there's no fear. There's this courage that, and ability to be able to just let whatever comes in that space, just come in that space, because the mind, mindfulness, equanimity, all the powerful forces of the mind are able to uh, support that seeing, that experience of whatever comes in. Equanimity is what makes metta immeasurable. It's what allows metta to open to uh, a friend and an enemy, a benefactor, a friend, a neutral person, and an enemy, and is able to offer all of them our kindness and our love without preference. This is what metta makes, what makes metta powerful, is equanimity. They describe metta as a gentle rain that falls on everything with, without discrimination. And we feel that when we do the metta practice in the way that it's prescribed, from the easiest to the most difficult, There could be times when we're offering metta to the most difficult person and we truly see 
that the quality of loving kindness that we're offering to that most difficult person is no different than the quality of loving kindness that we offer to a benefactor or friend. We see the quality of our heart is the same. We're able to put them all in one room together and we don't light up just the the ones we care for. We can offer to all. It's what allows compassion to face suffering without reactivity. So there's a great balance, a great spaciousness that includes everything, doesn't exclude anything. The Dalai Lama calls it immeasurable impartiality, this kind of equanimity with metta, with compassion, immeasurable impartiality. The Buddha says, when liberation of the mind by equanimity is developed, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeter could make him or herself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when equanimity is developed, no limiting actions remain there. None persists there. So with that quote from the Buddha, I just wanted to dispel some idea that when there's equanimity, it's just like we're a doormat, kind of on the level of everyday life. And we we just say, okay, things are just as they are, and we, we stand there and let somebody get hurt. It's not that at all. It's just that with a mind that's free from attachment to how we think it should be or aversion to how we think it is, The mind is so clear, it's so courageous, it's able to step forward and do what we need to do quickly, if if that's what the right thing is to do. Or maybe, in in a lot of cases, we have the good sense to to just be quiet, because most of the time we're, we're jumping in there and we don't really even know what our true intentions are or where we're coming from. And it really gives us a chance to take a moment, take a breath, and assess the situation. So we get the wrong idea sometimes that on the level of everyday life, equanimity is uncaring, or uh, there's this kind of indifference, which is the near enemy of equanimity, because it seems like equanimity. Um, There's a this new T-shirt going on in on on Maui, um, and there is a street. Everybody knows the street in Lahaina where we live. It's called Ainakea, and sometimes you know people have troubles in their life, and people are telling another person the trouble, and you get overwhelmed with it. And we have the saying, "I no care, I don't care," you know, <laughs> "I no care." It's that kind of attitude. I just don't care. That's apathy or indifference. I no care. <laughs> but actually, when we feel equanimity, we really have a sense that we were empowered by a great strength. We can step forth like that trumpeter that makes him or herself heard in the four quarters, everywhere, in all directions. 
we can take action when we need to. So I wanted to uh, make a special, uh, take special time to say that. Uh, when I read this passage about the vigorous trumpeteer and that sound could be heard without difficulty, as usual, you know, I try to tell a story. So it kind of, I just see you open your eyes again. <laughs> <laughs> When I, by the way, when I came in here, I thought, oh, I thought I was on time and everybody's here. And then I thought, oh, they're probably thinking, it's the lady who tells the stories. I'll come here early. <laughs> so my story today is um, about this, being able to step forth when you need to, to go forth. And in 2005, I... I had this story from a long time ago, and I wrote the year. Uh, it was the end of one of our retreats on Maui, and uh, I was going to the local uh, store, the local mall, to get some gifts for the people who were on staff. And uh, I was entering the mall with a friend of mine, and I can't remember at that time, she's a dear friend of mine, and, and she has become a nun, but I can't remember if she was a nun or not. She, she was always becoming a nun. <laughs> so, um, so we were walking into the mall, and all of a sudden, I saw on the left side, like from here to where the back of the room is, that far away, I saw a young man approach another young man and started pummeling him beating him up, just really pummeling him. The other, the young man who was receiving the punches didn't seem to be very strong. He was, I think he might have had a little bit too much to drink or whatever, and he was just kind of sinking down. And the guy was really hitting him hard. My whole attention went to that, and everything else was a blur. And I looked around quickly to see, is anybody stopping? Is anybody helping this guy? And, you know, people just looked, and the guy was pretty strong, beating on the other guy. And they were passing by. And um, I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? Well, much earlier, about 10, 15 years before, I had taken this co course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what course I'm going to say? Mo model mugging? I took model mugging course. Believe it. Has anybody taken a model mugging course? You know how it, that's pretty hard course to take. It's where they really put you in situations where you could be in danger. I mean, you're not in real danger, but they put you in situations where they got this big guy or even two guys all covered up with these, what do you call a... Uh, padded stuff, yeah. And they teach you their head and all over the place, you know, and they teach you what to do in certain situations and how to fight off these guys. I, I went to take my daughter, who was 14, our daughter, but I knew I really needed it too. What I learned in that course is that you yell as loud as you can when, if you feel like you're in danger 
or somebody's in danger. That's the first thing that you do. So they made us yell, you know. As, and I'm not a big yeller, although Steve might think differently. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't really yell. But um, I can talk pretty loud. Anyway. <laughs> I have to. I've got a strong personality for a husband. <laughs> so, Anyway, uh, I yelled as loud as I could. And I yelled, stop, stop, really loud. I mean, my voice, it was, I, I, I really felt that it was um, uh, raspy afterwards for a few hours. And I called for help. I said, somebody help, please. I had the sense enough not to go close, but I went close enough. So I, I went close enough, maybe as close as from me to Gerald. And I said, stop, stop, as loud as I could. Stop hitting him, stop hitting him, you know. And I, people must have thought I was crazy. And the nun, who my friend must have thought, what is this woman up to? I never saw her like this before, you know. And at some point, uh, the security guard came. And when the guy saw the security guard, um, the security guard came close and did something, you know, hands-on. And what the guy ran away, who was pummeling the other guy, running towards me. Well, I thought, I had the sense enough, get out of the way, you know. <laughs> so I did get out of the way, and he wasn't really running towards me. To, he was running away. That was all. But I was very loud, and I did something. And this, it, it, was with, it wasn't with like I was angry. It wasn't with like, no, we shouldn't hit other people. You know, <laughs> this is, I wasn't, it wasn't with righteous indignation. It was like, somebody's hurt, do something. Somebody do something. So that's what we do, even with equanimity. We don't hold back. We see what needs to be done. We take action like that if we need to. There's no hesitation about it. So we can do that with equanimity. Um, equanimity translates into two Pali words that are used by the Buddha. The first one is Tatra Majatata. It's not a word that we usually hear. Usually we hear the other word, which is upeka. But this is tatra majatata. It's a long compound word that comes out meaning to stand in the middle of all things, to stand in the middle of this. It means really to, to connect, to enter into. It refers to balance when you stand in the middle. And the balance comes from that inner stability where we feel really, really stable to do that. It's a strong presence of confidence and of uprightness and an ability, you know, some courage and some wisdom to know on, on the level of living in the world that we'll know what to do. It's um, described in the, in the scriptures as like a, the ballast of a ship that keeps it upright in strong winds the ballast of a ship, keeping it upright in strong winds. Many of you, some of you teach, and many of you have learned 
the mountain meditation from John Kabat-Zinn, which is about equanimity. You know, the having the, the poise and being posed like a mountain in your sitting posture, like you are a mountain. And no matter what comes, what winds of change come, it doesn't knock you over. Sometimes it's described as a beautiful upright rock in a storm that isn't pushed over by any of those elements. So this is the stability, the protection from the eight worldly winds, praise and blame, success and failure, or gain and loss, pleasure and pain, or joy and sorrow. So we need a large measure of this, this equipoise, this balance composure, to stand in the middle and not get thrown about by these winds. When you think about standing in the middle, when you reflect on that, it also means that you can see all sides, right? You can see more because you're standing in the middle. You can see that side and that side. And, and maybe that means that if you're hearing things about on one side, you know, one side of the argument, you could also know that there's always two sides of an argument or two sides of seeing the picture and to be able to say, okay, I see this side now. Now can I see that side? And really open yourself to seeing both sides instead of just being attached to one side of the story or one way that you can see it. Maybe you can see another person's side too. Um, I was thinking of a story to tell about this, and I could rem- all I could remember was there was a movie by my favorite actress, Meryl Streep, and um, it was a movie about getting lost in some wilderness with her family, and um, there was an argument going on, and they were on a rock, I remember, and the husband was saying, you're taking sides. You're on their side. Whose side are you on anyway? And she was supposed to answer something, but in an interview I read about that movie later, she said what she wanted to say. And I thought, right on. And she said, no, she said, I'm on everybody's side. It wasn't that she was taking sides. I'm on everybody's side. And that's the way I feel when I've heard my children's arguments. You know, I hear one of them saying something and I think, Okay, that makes sense. I know you feel that way. but um, And I'm going to listen to what the other one says and see what's going on so I can see the whole picture. Oh, no, Mom, you know, big argument and all that. But I'll say, okay, I understand. I love you too, but I really need to listen to that side also. And it does turn out that I, you know, I feel compassion for everyone. So that's that uh, Tatra Majatata. Sometimes the Buddha talks about it as, as I said, resting the mind before it falls into extremes. And here, the other extreme, I told you the near enemy is apathy or indifference, or sometimes we actually feel it as a disconnection, a closing down sometimes. That's the near enemy. But the far enemy uh, is reactivity. And this is the one we always think about 
more in terms of equanimity, the opposite being reactivity. That's the direct opposite, the far enemy. Reactivity comes in two parts with regard to equanimity. And it is, namely, aversion and attachment. And all the various strands of aversion in relationship to, you know, when we don't like something, or judging it, criticizing it, frustrated with it, impatient with it, or that person, or attachment, uh, which is wanting it to be our way and, you know, clinging to something, and on and on and on. Both of them are accompanied by delusion. Can't see clearly. When there is strong attachment, or any attachment, or any aversion, delusion is there also. Both rooted in ignorance and delusion. So when there is vigilance, when we can see clearly, um, usually we do have some measure of equanimity. We can bring equanimity into the picture. And really, if, if we're not seeing clearly, and we can be clear enough that that's happening, maybe we can incline the mind to more clarity, to the ability to be able to open with that spacious balance, to see everything, to really connect with what's going on. We're living in a time when fear and terror are continually pulling at us. There's a lot of attention to dwell on the negative. You just, all you have to do is open the news online or in the, you know, physical papers, and that's what 99% of what you read is all about. And to distract ourselves from that, uh, from all of that, our consumer society provides countless opportunities to encourage obsessive wanting and buying. So there's fear on one side, and there's this obsessive wanting on another side. And where can we stand in the middle? Where can we rest the mind before we fall into the extremes that we live in this society, in this society that presents the extremes on a daily basis over and over again? We really have to have the strength and the commitment to develop that kind of inner balance so we're not being pulled to one side or to another. Where is the middle path? Where can we find it? It's up to us. How can we open to the outer conditions of the world with balance so that maybe compassion can come forth? How can we do it without pushing it away if it's difficult to open to? Usually there is fear or aversion, maybe because we don't want to bother or maybe we want it to be another way, and so we rush towards something more pleasant that we can uh, just have some pleasant time with. So this is what we have to face and the kinds of predicaments that we're in. A more common term that we hear uh, with equanimity is 
how the four, one of the four Brahma Viharas are described as upeka, upeka. And that means the ability to see without being caught by what is seen. The ability to see or to experience whatever there is in the world. Maybe it's a, a health condition that a friend is having, um, some dangerous or difficult situation that a family and friend is go or friend is going through, or maybe it's a big deal like um, the horrible incident in the Gulf or in Haiti, the earthquake in Haiti. So to be able to open to any experience outwardly and also inwardly without being caught in it, without drowning in it, without letting it weaken our ability to be able to contact a deeper place. It enables us to look over the situation, to assess the situation with a clear and balanced mind. This is nothing that you don't know. You know all of this, and it's just being able to hear it, take it in, and really feel empowered by your ability to be able to contact this place in yourselves. So, of course, uh, all of you know your own stories. Uh, I was trying to think of, gee, there's so many stories I could tell about this, where I was caught by what I was seeing out there in the world, in my family, a lot of it's in my own family, caught by what's going on there, and weakened by it because of being overwhelmed and not being able to see clearly, not being able to um, be in balance with what's going on. So if you just reflect on your own life, you probably wouldn't have to go very far to understand or to remember that yourself. I mean, just being here with yogi mind, you know, the magnification of the insignificant and trivial to a crisis stage. Uh, <laughs> just here, you can see, you know, outer conditions where there's it's not the way we want it to be. It should be some other way, and you know, we're actually really not going to be able to live without it getting rectified. <laughs> we have to do something about it right away, and instead of just you know, being with what's going on in here. So we're able, uh, with Upeka, we're able to stay connected to our own inner situation. You know, sometimes we're so pulled out by the outer situation that our inner situation is just overshadowed. We don't really know what we feel. You know, how many times has it been in your own life and even recently when something has happened? I can remember times currently when something has happened to one of my family members and I'm just so overwhelmed by what's going on with that situation that if somebody asks me, well, how do you feel about that? I, it's like, oh, I haven't touched into that place yet. Um, I'm pretty sure that I, I'm, I, 
I'll be okay in telling you this story. I haven't asked permission directly, but it's kind of an open thing with my, my daughter and her daughter. Um, a couple of months ago, I think, was a couple of months ago, she didn't come home. <laughs> and it's what teenagers do sometimes. Uh, pretty much all of my teenagers, when they did that, didn't come home for one night. So my daughter called me and she said, I called the police. And I said, okay, that's good, you know. And oh, there was this big turmoil and everybody was up. All the siblings were up. We're all, you know, going back to saying our prayers, you know, may she be safe, Hail Mary, and all of that, and all the metta and everything, you know, not taking any chances at all, calling on, <laughs> calling on all the, <laughs> the saints. <laughs> and um, she did turn out to be okay. And she was just doing her thing. She was with her friends and, and doing her rebellious thing with her mom. And um, she was okay, but boy, I was so overwhelmed by it all. And I remember uh, one of my girlfriends asking me, well, how are you doing, Kamala, with it? And I was telling my friend, and how are you doing with it? And I said, oh, yeah, how am I doing with it, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, just looking at my own heart. It's really important to stay with ourselves and not just be pulled out or caught up or blinded by what's going on out there. Because then we don't, we don't really know what to do. There's that old story, a lot of you have heard this already from me, where uh, with a bunch of activists um, in the audience, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was talking about his mother country of Tibet and what was going on there. This was, this was years ago. And um, some people were just really gung-ho to get in there and do something and help. And this one person said, with obviously some kind of anger and, uh, well, defilements in the mind, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to help, I'm going to whatever, da-da-da-da-da. And His Holiness says, wait. He said, settle your mind first. Come from a mind that's a little more balanced and clear, and then you can help. So, as His Holiness says, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason in that way. The ability to see without being caught by what is seen. To be able to uh, have that, to be in that place, then we can really go out and help in the world. In India, I spoke the other night about how colloquially equanimity or upeka means seeing with patience, seeing with understanding. So when there is patience, there is this inner disarmament. And another uh, term I got from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, he said the most important disarmament is the inner disarmament, disarming the defilements, of the mind, those places of not seeing clearly and unwholesome uh, attitudes of the mind, kind of, that are our default um, reaction sometimes, default setting. Inner disarmament of non-reactivity 
So he says, so then you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason. So that's what allows this clean compassion to come forth towards the hardships of any group, any person, any culture, any society that might be against you or what you stand for. It's said that equanimity is what empowers compassion, and that's why uh, he is the champion of compassion. You really feel the compassion of His Holiness. We're so lucky to have such a person in our lifetime living. If we ourselves remain angry and then sing of world peace, it has little meaning. So how many of us are, how many of us have done that? We want peace, we want peace, and we stand for that, and we're angry about it, (laughs) you know? That doesn't make any sense. It has little meaning. So it's disarming those places in our own hearts. So in practice, um, in the world, we are able more and more as we find that pathway that's more easily accessible because we're practicing equanimity, we know that pathway clearly. And when something happens in the world, we can say, okay, this is how it is right now. Give ourselves a time to breathe in the situation, to see what's going on, and then to see what can we do about it. And then to check in with our own hearts and to say, where am I coming from? What's going on in here? And if we're feeling angry or, or extremely passionate or overwhelmed about something, then we can settle that place down to not add anything more to it, but just bring a measure of equanimity here so that we're as clear-minded as we can be. In our practice here, we can practice equanimity a lot of times with the pain that goes on in the body or the heartache that we feel in our minds and hearts, the suffering, when we can bring a measure of equanimity there. And maybe it's just the simple words, whatever words appeal to you or touch your heart. I just use the words, okay, this is how it is right now. And because those words mean, oh, Kamala, let's incline towards equanimity right now. And because the power of that intention can be so strong and it comes from a place of deep, this deep motivation to benefit all beings, maybe the mind can go there. So it's through with the conditions of the world, it's the conditions right here, uh, as we practice and retreat in our moment-to-moment experience. But there's a second refinement of developing equanimity on a very profound level, which I began to talk about at the beginning of this talk. And that's when there is a continuity of mindfulness, which brings about more mindfulness. One moment of mindfulness brings another moment of mindfulness uh, there because one thing develops another. And it also brings a lot of equanimity. It just, mindfulness develops equanimity quite naturally 
We don't even have to do the equanimity practice as a Brahma Vihara. Just mindfulness will bring about equanimity very in a very natural and powerful way. And it deepens this non-reactivity to pleasant and unpleasant experience. It just is able, mindfulness is able to experience pleasant just as it is. Experience unpleasant just as it is. Without the unpleasant pulling in aversion, without the pleasant pulling in attachment or being the cause of attachment or aversion. So this deepening of the practice happens very powerfully during this time when there is no reactivity to the pleasant feeling or the pleasant tone or the unpleasant tone in experience. It does not give rise to desire. It does not give rise to hatred or aversion. So the mind becomes very, very pure. There is a a purity, an absence of greed and hatred, and of course an absence of delusion, because there's a lot of clarity in the mind at this time. So I just want to give an example of that, um, so you can see from your own experience. Just say, for example, that we're, we're walking outside and there is this scent of brownies being baked in the kitchen or chocolate chip cookies. Okay, now even if you watch your mind right now, there's just the thought of it, even just the thought of it, there's a lot, it's pleasant, right? Just the thought, oh, maybe for some of you it's brownies, some of you it might be something else, but it's pleasant to smell it. That contact of of that scent brings about on the heels of that a pleasant feeling for most people with brownies. That pleasant, <laughs> that pleasant feeling, first of all, that contact can be known, smelling, smelling, and it could pretty much end right there and not bring about anything else. But usually, <laughs> pleasant comes to, oh, pleasant, pleasant. And then if you're honest with yourselves, what happens? the wanting, or the mind goes into, oh, when can I get that? Oh, maybe I could go closer and I could go like this in the window and they'll give me a piece, you know? <laughs> or the mind starts scheming and doing things to, to feed that wanting. Maybe we don't even know that wanting is there. And so well, then we deal with wanting and the mind going round and round and, you know, spun about by it. But if the wanting never came, just the either the contact with the smell came or just the and or the pleasant feeling just came and the wanting never came, what could that be like? Could you even imagine How many of you have experienced just pleasant without anything? Yeah, sure you have. That can happen over and over again. 
And the opposite is true with, um, with a, say, a crash that happens and the unpleasant uh, Vedana or unpleasant tone or unpleasant feeling that arises with that. If there's just the experience of the hearing or just and or just the experience of the unpleasant, then aversion doesn't come. When this happens over and over again with every sense door, you know, with smelling, touching, hearing, etc., etc., tasting, and the mind door, this is called six limbed equanimity, like equanimity at every sense door. And you can imagine, maybe you can imagine, how it would be for the mind to experience whenever any contact came up with any sense door and or the feeling tone came up with that, the mind would not react with attachment or aversion. And there are times when it's really possible to experience this. It's said when this is experienced, one knows what the mind of a fully enlightened being is like all the time, just like that. It doesn't mean that that person is disconnected from life. Of course, there's ability to respond. But it doesn't go into hatred or delusion or attachment. It's just wisdom. Wisdom can respond. You don't need hatred or delusion or attachment to respond with wisdom. So there's a very deep stability, a very deep peace arises. It's not the peace of Nibbana, but it's the doorway to that. A very deep kind of abiding, just staying in that equanimity for a while. You really see the possibility. It's said when a person gets to this, um, there is some kind of surety in their lives in their, uh, that they will surely reach um, that kind of unconditioned peace. So mindfulness becomes, is very steady at this time, and that equanimity allows the wisdom factors to be uh, deepened and matured. And those wisdom factors, which Steve and I will talk more about in the coming days, are the factors of impermanence, or anicca, the factors of the not-self characteristic, anatta, the factor of dukkha, which is the um, suffering of, of life or the oppressive nature of life, to be able to really see those clearly without fear, with the ability to live in alignment with those truths, live in harmony with those truths, live with clarity, of course, knowing how to respond to life with those truths deeply activated. So, I'd like to end with um, this from Achan Sumedho. He says, uh, the mind can be like space, He says, the mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective 
once we know the space of the mind. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go without us being caught in reaction or resistance. And this is describing equanimity. Let's sit for a moment. <laughs> 